My name is Ezra, I'm one of the pastors here. I'm excited uh, to have the opportunity to come and share with you uh, this morning. And um, how many of you guys are familiar with, uh, there's an app, it's called One Second a Day. If anybody, anybody have that? Yes, a few of you, yes, right? So the basic idea is that you capture a little bit of video from each day of the month, and at the end of the month, you put together a montage so you can go back and be like, oh, I remember that, oh, that was fun, I kind of forgot about that moment. Like, And uh, you kind of... Uh, relish in what you've experienced. And so, in some ways, uh, this sermon is, is meant to do that uh, for you, where we're bringing this uh, In the Beginning sermon series to a close, uh, the gospel uh, found in the book of Genesis. And uh, so, it's kind of a reminder of everything that we've learned this summer, uh, a recap of some of those great truths that you, you grabbed a hold of, and you're like, oh yeah, I, I, I wanted to remember that, but, but how quickly we forget, right? And, uh, but part of it also is to expand on and, uh, and really bring us to a place of application. My goal and my hope for you today is not that you just listen and receive information today, but that God will really stir in your heart uh, an action uh, that you need to take, not in your own strength, not to walk out of here and be like, man, I just got to try harder, I got to do better, but, um, but to really allow the Holy Spirit to lead and guide and convict and direct and empower you uh, to take the steps that you need to take to get closer to Him today. So that's my prayer for you. That's what I've been praying that God would do through the service and through the sermon. And uh, I'm going to invite you to turn to John chapter 14, uh, is where we're going to be looking at in the text. Um, but before we jump into that, I just want to remind you at the beginning of this series, in the very first sermon uh, that we did on Genesis 1, uh, we shared with you some elements of the gospel that come out of this book called What is the Gospel? It's down in our resource room. Uh, I know a number of you have read it uh, before, but in this book, they kind of break out the gospel and what they say, which is right and true, they say, hey, it takes the entire Bible to, to, to explain what the gospel is. God doesn't waste a word, right? And so every, every word, every book that's in there is there for a reason and a purpose, and it all helps to fill out and color in what the gospel is. But essentially, you can break the gospel down into these, these primary elements. When we look at it in, in power and in truth, these elements are going to be involved, right? So there's the idea of God, man, Jesus, response, and kingdom, and so as we've, over the past several weeks, as we've looked through the book of Genesis, we've seen uh, a greater understanding of each of these things. Uh, God, his character, his nature, so much of who God is was on display in the book of Genesis. Right off the bat, we see in the beginning, God, right? That he existed before creation, outside of creation. He is uncreated. Uh, he, is, he is vast. He is powerful. He created all things. We see that he's a God of order and detail, right? As we look at the earth that he created, uh, we see a, he's, a, he's a good God. Everything that he created is good. And, and we see that he is a relatable God. He's a God who wants to be known. We see that Adam and Eve had a relationship with God, that he spoke to Noah, that he spoke to Abraham, that, he, that Enoch walked with him, and he took him up to be with him in heaven. And so he is a good God who is a powerful creator. He wants to be in relationship with us. And yet he is ultimately, completely holy, without sin, without darkness, without blemish. And because of that, he is also the righteous judge. That he comes and, and when, when Cain kills Abel, right, he says, he, 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 uh, 
he holds him accountable for that action. When Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden, he has to take them and remove them from the garden. When sin became so rampant in the earth that, that, that the people were becoming self-destructive, ultimately, uh, God got to a point where he said, hey, I'm going to have to judge the world. I'm going to send a flood, and I'm going to uh, eliminate, right? And so, um, so within God, we see this loving, caring, creating Father who is also uh, passionate about what is right and good and just. And then entering into the equation with him, we see humankind, man and woman, the pinnacle of God's creation, right? He created universes, he created stars, he created all these things, and the pinnacle, the last thing that he created was us. That's, that's humbling to think about, right? You look at in the Hubble telescope and these incredible pictures of distant galaxies and all these amazing things, and God values you more than all of that. Because you're made in his image. You're a reflector of the image of God. And you're capable of creativity. And you're capable of, of great beauty. But sadly, as we saw, Adam and Eve chose uh, to, to receive the deception of the serpent. They chose rebellion against God. And then all of their children that were born after them, beginning with Cain and continuing forward, were born with this, this stain, this mark of sin. And so we're, we're capable of incredible good and incredible wickedness. And, and even when God wiped out everything except for Noah and his family, when Noah and his family got off the ark, the wickedness continued, right? Sin got off the ark with them. And so, so we're left with this challenge of, of a good and loving and perfect God and his, his broken and, and, and flawed creation, capable of so much good, capable of so much beauty, so valuable, and yet marred by sin. And so there's this disconnect that our sin creates. And so we come to Jesus. Now, the name of Jesus is not mentioned in the, in the book of Genesis, right? But, but there are whispers, there are hints of him on every page. And, uh, and, and as early as, as when, when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, God says, hey, Eve, one of your descendants, one of your children is going to crush the head of the snake. And it, so it set this expectation that there's going to be a savior who is going to come. When, when, when God came to Noah and said, hey, I have a plan of salvation for you. It's a specific plan. You have to do this. You have to build this ark. But once you built the ark, I'm going to be the one who closes the door. I'm going to save you through this plan that I've created. And we see in that a hint of Jesus, God's plan of salvation for us. We can't save ourselves, right? Uh, Noah and his family couldn't take a lot of swimming lessons. Uh, they couldn't do a Google search on how to build a boat that will last the 10,000-year the, the flood, right? Like, uh, there was nothing they could do to save themselves. The only way that they were saved is because God chose by grace to save them, the same the way that he chooses to save us by grace through Jesus, right? And so, so there's these hints. And then most powerfully with Abraham and Isaac, right? God tells Abraham, I want you to take your son Isaac up and I want you to sacrifice him. And, and we're told in the book of Hebrews that by faith, Abraham believed that even if he sacrificed his son, that, that God would, would bring him back to life. A picture and a hint of Jesus. And ultimately, God didn't ask Abraham to sacrifice his son. God took that upon himself. He sacrificed his only son, Jesus, and he provided the ram as the sacrifice in its place, right? The way that Jesus is provided as our substitute in our place to die for our sins. And so even though the name of Jesus is not mentioned in Genesis, we see this incredible picture of who he is and an expectation for the one that would come that we know now is Jesus. And so many times, and uh, that is what a gospel presentation, it involves those elements, and that's kind of where it stops, right? Uh, there's God who's perfect. There's man who's, who's flawed. We're separated. And so then... Um, uh, Jesus comes, and he bridges the gap, and he's our substitute, and, uh, and we get what he deserves, and he took the penalty that we, that, that we deserved, 
And, and that's what we present. There's the gospel, right? But, but there's two more elements that we have to look at, uh, response and kingdom. And I think in this series, we talked a little bit about response, but I, today my hope is to, to fill that out a little bit more. What do we do with this truth? Uh, because the reality is, is that the demons knew who Jesus was, right? <laughs> the demons were the first one. When he came on the scene, they're like, there's the son of God. <laughs> That's the one. He's, he's the one, right? He's powerful. Like, Jesus, whatever you tell us to do, right? They understood who he was. So just understanding that Jesus is the Son of God is not saving in itself. The response that's required is faith. To believe that Jesus is who the Bible says that he is and to trust him for our salvation. Not only to trust that he's the Son of God with the power to save us, but to trust that he loves us enough and that he desires to save us and that by putting our, our faith and our trust in what he has done that we will spend eternity with him. That's what saves us. It's faith alone. But there's a natural result of faith, which is repentance and obedience. Once we've been shown the truth, if we really have faith, the only natural thing then for us to do is to fall into obedience, to turn away from our old ways and to begin to follow him. And I love what it says about Noah. I, I pointed this out when I preached this sermon that God gives him all these things like, hey, make it this many cubits, make the ark this big and use this kind of wood and put pitch on it and do all this stuff. And it says, Noah did what God said. He did everything that the Lord commanded. He had faith that God was going to save him, but that faith led to obedience. He still had to build the ark, right? <laughs> the faith led to an action, and, and that's what we're going to explore today. What, is, what does our faith lead us to? What does it lead us to do? Because it's an anticipation of the kingdom. The kingdom is where Jesus rules and reigns, and what the Bible tells us is there's going to come a day where there'll be a new heaven and earth that Jesus will return and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Like that day is going to come and there will be no more wickedness. There'll be no more crying. There'll no be sickness. There'll be no more death. It will all be wiped away and Jesus will reign perfectly in his perfect creation. And while we await that, that perfect day, what Jesus tells us in the Bible is that the kingdom begins in our heart as soon as we begin to obey him. When we fall into obedience with him, if he rules and reigns in our heart, then the kingdom has begun to come in our heart. That each of you that have put your faith in Jesus, you're a center of the kingdom. <laughs> you're, you're a place where heaven meets earth, where, where, where Jesus rules and reigns in this broken, sinful place. Your heart becomes territory that's owned by the king. So how do we do that? What does that look like, right? That's, that's what we're striving for. We want to grow in that. You know, I talked, about, I talked about faith that leads to action, right? Like if I, if I told you, hey, in about two minutes, there's going to be a fire drill in here and lights are going to start flashing and the siren's going to go off, and, uh, and, but it's just a drill. It's just a test, right? And so I encourage you to get up and to, and to walk out now because it's going to be really unpleasant. You're not going to like it. And so I, right, if I did that, if you had faith in what I said, that what I was saying was true and you believed it, then it would lead to action, right? You would get up and you would walk out. But some might choose not to do that. Why not? Why would we choose not to? Well, first of all, you might think, well, I've been through fire drills before. Maybe it's not that bad, right? Maybe he's over-exaggerating. Maybe I know a little bit better, uh, better than him. So I believe what he's saying. I believe that is going to happen. I just don't think it's going to be as, as catastrophic as what he says, right? So, uh, so you might, in some sense, believe, but it might not lead to obedience. And so you would experience the pain and the disorienting uh, nature of the fire drill. That There's not going to be a fire drill, by the way, so don't, don't worry that I'm going to make you get up, right? Or the other option is you may not have faith in me at all. You might say, man, I don't, I don't believe that he knows what he's talking about. I don't believe that any of that's true. 
And then when the fire alarm went off, you would panic and you would freak out and you would run around the room like, where's the fire, right? Like you would, you would, you would freak out. And so, so faith, when we have faith, if we believe God is who he says he is, then we have to move into obedience. The faith has to lead us to an obedience. And so, so in John 14, Jesus talks about this in a really clear way. So John 14, beginning in verse 15, it says this. It says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Is there any question <laughs> that Jesus wants us to know that love equals obedience and obedience equals love? I mean, he, he makes it crystal clear in this passage, right? He says it three times positively and one time negatively, right? Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And then verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. It seems crystal clear, right? <laughs> it's, it's a simple proposition. If you love me, you will obey me. Now, I notice I'm not getting a lot of, amen, brother. <laughs> That's awesome. Because we hear this and we're like, wow. I mean, I, I think I love Jesus, but I know I'm not obedient. So what do I do with that? I don't live with that. And, 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 and that's why I really wanted to preach this today, because I feel like that this is what I, I see in my, in my own life, what I see in the church around us, the church at large. Uh, our church is that there are people who genuinely love and believe in Jesus or would profess to do so, and yet um, just continually um, struggling just continually hindered, uh, just continually not living in the freedom that Jesus paid a, a huge price for. The, the kingdom for us is always into the future. Someday I'll be free of this. Someday I'll be able to experience Jesus' love, and someday I'll know what he wants from me, but today I'm just, I'm struggling. I believe what he says, but I don't know what he wants me to do with my life. I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't know how to get over this sin issue that I just can't get past, right? And so my hope is that as we look at this passage that we can, we can get some traction on that. We can kind of move forward from that. Man, I need this if nobody else, right? So like I'm, I'm, I'll preach to myself, you know, because, <laughs> because I certainly struggle with this. And so for me, sometimes it's helpful to look at a grid, uh, to look at a graph, to kind of see something graphically to help, help me to have a picture of it. And so, so uh, I made you a grid. You guys are welcome. Uh, 
So on the bottom line here, I've been listening to too much Paul Miller, right? He's always doing gr grids and charts. All right, so across the bottom here is this, this love for Jesus, right? Growing love for Jesus towards a perfect love for Jesus. And up the left side, we have our obedience. Um, growing obedience. How much am I doing what Jesus calls me to do? And then uh, it doesn't fall hard and fast, but there's kind of four quadrants that you can, you can kind of imagine here, right? And so uh, the bottom, well, let's start in the top right. The top right, this is what Jesus is calling us to do, right? He wants us to love him, and he wants us to be obedient to him. And in our, in our best moments, in our best days, we do this, right? We, we do what Jesus wants us to do, not because of selfish reasons, but because we love him. And it gives us great confidence, because it says in here, if you do this, if you obey me, then, then you'll know that the Father loves you, and, and the Father loves me, and I love the Father, and the Father loves you, and it's this great relationship of love, and we'll abide together, and you can know, and I will manifest myself to you. I'll show you myself, and that's what we're aspiring to do. When I do premarital counseling with couples, I'll, in the book, it'll always have like three kind of bad answers and one like awesome answer, right? And it'll say, which one of these are you? <laughs> and couples are always like, well, I mean, I think we're, I think we're number four, right? <laughs> like, I know you're trying to be number four, <laughs> but in your lesser moments, which one do you fall into? And that's what we need to look at this morning. I want you to just take a moment and think, honestly, if you had to put a dot on the graph up there, if you got a laser pointer with you, you can point your spot, right? Right onto the thing. Where would you put yourself on there? Where would you put yourself on that axis? The, the, the inverse of, of full obedience and love for Jesus is the category that I would call lost, right? And that sounds offensive, right, to sell somebody that they're lost. But, but over and over again in the Bible, here's what it says. It, it talks about somebody being like a lost coin or a lost sheep or, or a wayward child who is lost. And, and here's what I want you to see. Um, the coin, the sheep, the, the lost son, they're valued, they're cherished, they're loved, Somebody is searching for them. There's a great desire to restore them to a place of being found. If you're here today and you don't love Jesus and you're not obedient to him, I want you to know that, that lost is a great compliment <laughs> because it points to the fact that you can be found in him. It, it points to the fact of the father who would love to welcome you home. It, it points to the, the elder brother, Jesus, who is searching for you, who is calling out to you, who is looking for you and saying, you're, you're valuable. You're desirable. You're important. If I find you, I'm going to celebrate. And so while it's not a great place to be, not loving Jesus and disobedient to Jesus, there's great hope to be found, to enter into a place where you do love him. And when he finds you and when you realize what he has already done for you, your, your heart will explode with love for him and you will desire nothing more than to be obedient to him. So if that's where you are today, man, I'm so glad you're here. I'm glad God brought you to this place to hear his truth. Above that, we have uh, this idea of somebody who appears to be very obedient, but has no love. They're cold. They're judgmental. This is what the Pharisees were who interacted with Jesus. This is the elder brother in the story of the prodigal son. We talk about this story often, right? The, the younger son took his inheritance. He went out and wasted it on loose living. He ended up destitute and poor and broken, and he came back begging the father for forgiveness, and the father runs and rushes and greets him and hugs him and welcomes him back in and throws a huge party for him and kills the fatted calf. And the older brother, who's out working diligently, being obedient in the field, comes in, and he's angry. And he says, how could, you, how could you do this? I've worked for you for years. I did everything you ever asked me to do. I was obedient 
And you never even gave me a young goat that I could, I could have a party with my friends. And now this sinner comes home and you kill the fatted calf. That's not fair. That's not right. And in that moment, his heart was exposed. All those years of obedience service were not about the father. It wasn't about love for the father. It was about love for himself. He was doing it because he thought that it would put him in a better position. And so this is, this is uh, when we tend to be legalistic, when we tend to be religious, this is where we fall. Where we say, hey, I'm going to check every box and I'm going to dot every I and I'm going to cross every T. And, and God, you better not let anything bad happen to me because I did what I was supposed to do. And if you do, I'm going to be mad at you. I'm going to be mad if something happens, right? It's a, it's a, it's a legalistic spirit that doesn't come out of love. But, but notice I said earlier, it's the appearance of obedience. Because what was, when they came to him and they said to Jesus, hey, what is the greatest command? And what did Jesus say? Love the Lord with all your heart. And he said, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So there's three people being loved. There's loving God, loving our neighbors, and loving ourselves. This group gets number three right, right? They love themselves. They love me some me, right? I'm going to do whatever benefits me the most. But they don't really love God. They don't really love their neighbors. They use people. And the problem is because they don't love God and they're not getting the benefit of that love relationship, they're not being filled up by that, they're like a, a vacuum. They just always need something poured into them to keep going. All right, I'm going to get up early and I'm going to help park cars at church, but somebody better thank me. Somebody better smile. The pastor better call me and tell me I'm doing a good job because if he doesn't, I'm going to be angry. I'm going to be upset. I'm going to feel unappreciated. I'm going to feel, because they're doing it for what they can get out of it as opposed to saying, hey, I'm doing this for Jesus. <laughs> and I hope somebody thanks me and I hope somebody smiles at me, but I could do it for, for years and, and, and I would do it because I'm doing it. Audience of one, right? You hear me? <laughs> so, <laughs> doing it for Jesus, right? On the other end here, we have, those who would say that they love Jesus, but they're just struggling with disobedience. As soon as I read that, that, that verse, that, that piercing, convicting verse, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. For some of us, there's something that immediately popped into our head. Oh, man. I claim to love Jesus, but I know that this is wrong. This is sin in my life. This is brokenness. I know I shouldn't be doing this, but I'm doing it. I know I should be doing it, but I'm not doing it, right? Uh, we, we have this weight. And so what happens is you end up feeling frustrated. That is an interesting question. <laughs> what do we do about that? I'm glad Siri is listening to me, right? We struggle. We're frustrated. And, and here's the thing. Remember we talked about love God, love your neighbors, love yourself. This group says, man, I love God and, and I love my neighbors. I'm having a hard time loving myself. I'm disappointed. I have a hard time believing God could love me because I know what a failure I am, right? And so you start beating yourself down and, and you get into this cycle of like, uh, you feel distant from God and so you, you sin to try and fill the hole that only God can fill and it just becomes, you feel like you're on a hamster wheel. Has anybody ever felt like that? You don't have to raise your hand, but I did for you, right? <laughs> How do we get over this? How do we get past this place feeling like we're not good enough? Uh, let me encourage you with something. You're never going to be in the top, the very top right uh, uh, until you die and you go to be with Jesus and then he's revealed in full. You're, you're always going to struggle against sin, but that's the key, to struggle against it. It's this idea of, of repentance. And, and um, 
In this book, What is the Gospel? I want to read you a quote out of here. It talks about what repentance is. This was really helpful for me, and I hope it's, it's helpful for you. It says, none of this means that a Christian will never sin. Repenting of sin doesn't necessarily mean that you stop sinning. Certainly not altogether, often not in particular areas either. Christians are still fallen sinners even after God gives us new spiritual life, and we will continue to struggle with sin until we are glorified with Jesus. Now, if I stopped there, it would be in keeping with much of what we hear in Christian community, and it's basically like, hey, I'm a sinner. I knew I was going to sin. Jesus knew I was going to sin. Oh, well, what are you going to do? Shrug your shoulders, move on, keep sinning, hope that the grace is sufficient, right? But that's not where he stops. He says, but even if repentance doesn't mean an immediate end to our sinning, it does mean that we will no longer live at peace with our sin. We will declare mortal war against it and dedicate ourselves to resisting it by God's power on every front in our lives. Another writer put it this way, the difference between an unconverted and a converted man is not the one has sins and the other has none, but that the one takes part with his cherished sins against a dreaded God, and the other takes part with a reconciled God against his hated sins. That's what you have to ask yourself this morning. If there's sin that you're struggling with in your life, are you struggling to rationalize and make your sin acceptable to God? Or are you struggling with God against your sin? Are you saying, God, I hate that I do this. I know that you hate it, and I don't want to do it. But I feel powerless to, to stop. I need you to do what I can't do. I need you to change my heart. I need you to change my actions. I need you to, to, to transform me. But here's the thing. You can't just, just pray it. Hey, Jesus, take the wheel. And then say, well, whatever he does with it, he does with it, right? The Bible tells us over and over again, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Make every effort to make these qualities yours and increasing. We're not working to earn God's love. We already have it. He already loves us perfectly. You're not going to make him love, him love you more if you get a little bit better at limiting your sin. It's not about that. But you're supposed to set your face towards Jesus and away from your sins. And make every effort. Have you ever noticed how, how hard people um, work at sinning? <laughs> the efforts and the lengths they're willing to go to. Uh, think about high schoolers planning a beer party, right? <laughs> think about the lengths they will go to to procure the alcohol, to hide the alcohol, to make up lies about where they're going <laughs> to be. They will spare no effort so that they can go and sin and do something they're not supposed to do. But how many of us, with the sins that we struggle with, Say, well, you know, I tried to stop and I couldn't. I don't know. I guess I don't know. I guess I'm just weak, right? Make every effort. And here's the thing. You're not doing it alone. This is what I want you to see. Verse 15 says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Oh, man. Jesus, that's impossible. Yes. (laughs) It is impossible. But, verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Jesus says, if you love me, obey my commandments, and I'm going to send a helper, the Holy Spirit, to help you do what you cannot do on your own. But here's what I want you to understand. The Holy Spirit never puts it on autopilot, right? 
I never had that experience where, man, I was like struggling and then all of a sudden I just felt something come over me and it was kind of like a transformer and Holy Spirit mode kicked in and the Holy Spirit just like did it all right and I was like a passenger just watching. I was like, wow, that's amazing, right? Maybe it works that way for you. It doesn't work that way for me. We're told that the Holy Spirit is, is a person, the third person of the Trinity and I love in this verse how you can see the Trinity there together, right? And I, Jesus, will ask God the Father and he will give you another helper, the Holy Spirit, to be with you forever. All three persons of the Trinity work, and, and the Holy Spirit is a person. It's not, a, it's not this force. The Holy Spirit can be resisted. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. It can be, the Holy Spirit can be quenched. And so what the Holy Spirit does is it, it leads us into truth. It's the spirit of truth. He is the spirit of truth. And so the Holy Spirit will say to you, hey, that's not what God wants for you. It's that voice, right? Like, man, this is wrong. You shouldn't do this, right? The Holy Spirit will show you when you read through the Bible, you'll see the truth leap off the page and say, that truth right there, that applies to my life and that thing I'm dealing with right now. The Holy Spirit will teach you, will instruct you, will lead you and guide you, but you still have a part to play. I've heard it described like the two, two pedals on a bike, right? <laughs> he pushes, but you have to reciprocate. He's not just going to take over and turn you into a robot as much as we might like that, right? <laughs> and so the Holy Spirit will show you what's right. You don't have to worry about like, man, I just don't, I don't, I'm not going to know what the right thing is to do. He will lead you. He'll show you, but then you have to have the courage through his strength and his indwelling spirit to follow through. Let me encourage you with this. And this is what kind of set me on this, this uh, track in the first place. This was in my daily devotional uh, around the middle of the summer. August 6th, I believe it was, talking about this passage. Here's what he says. He says, How is it that people often ask that so many professing believers have so little happiness in their religion? How is it that so many know little of joy and peace in believing and go mourning and heavy-hearted towards heaven? Do you ever wonder that? Why is it the Christians don't seem very joyful? <laughs> Why is it that I don't feel joyful in my own life, right? Like, I, I, I've been saved, I've been redeemed, I'm with God, he's won the victory. I might feel that for five minutes on a Sunday morning, but I, I lose it so quickly. Why is that? Well, here's what he says. He says, the answer to these questions is a sorrowful one, but it must be given. Few believers attend as strictly as they should to Christ's practical sayings and words. There's far too much loose and careless obedience to Christ's commandments. There's far too much forgetfulness that while good works cannot justify us, they are not to be despised. Let these things sink down into our hearts. If we want to be eminently happy, we must strive to be eminently holy. The key to joy, the key to confidence, the key to feeling Jesus manifest himself and show himself in your life is deeply connected to our obedience to him. If you want to live in the kingdom where Jesus is the king, then clearly it means laying down our rights and our desires and our preferences for those of the king. So why don't we do this? Why do we struggle to do this? Part of it is sometimes we think we know better than he does. Right? Sometimes, Jesus, I know you say this, but... But, but you don't understand my situation. I'm sure when you wrote the Bible, you didn't anticipate this particular thing. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, only, I'm only so strong. I, I, you know, right? We, we rationalize our way out of it. We try and make an excuse for it. But the transformation will happen at this moment when your affections of your heart 
are more rooted deeply in Jesus than they are in anything else. Where your love for Jesus outweighs your desire for sin. Because how many of us rush to do something that we hate to do? Right? I, for a little while, I got away from it. But I used to have like a 30-minute block in my weekly schedule. Where I'm like, I'm going to do everything that I hate to do in this 30 minutes <laughs> and just get it out of the way, right? And, and I quit doing it because I didn't like doing it after a while. So now I've got a bunch of things that I hate to do that I haven't done for a long time, right? If we hate sin, we still might have an inclination towards it. That might be a weakness that we have. But, but if we come to love Jesus so much that it makes us hate that sin, we're not going to be in a hurry to do it. Now, rather than laying a heavy burden on you, I, I want to say one thing in closing here. Your sin might be, be deeply rooted in your heart. You might have established a pattern over a long period of time of sin that is really hard to break. Addiction, lust, pride, gossip. <laughs> you know, these things, these things, they don't disappear overnight, except by the grace of God. Sometimes he can just free you like that, and that's amazing when he does that. But what this might look like is you might need to get help, right? You might need to get an accountability partner. You might need to develop a, a, a plan. You might, you might need to put some people and some things out of your life because you know that they're bad and it's hard. But you know it's what Jesus wants for you. I'm not promising you this is going to be easier. It's going to be a snap. But what I can promise you is this. If you set your eyes on that, that goal, if you make that the target, if you declare mortal war on the sins that are hindering you from being who Jesus wants you to be, that you won't be doing it alone. That Jesus says, I will love you, and you will know that the Father loves you, and I will send the advocate, the helper, to be with you. That you won't be fighting alone, and you'll be lifted and you'll be carried as you go. Join me in prayer.